EMS One Academy is the leading way in high-quality, affordable training for EMTs and paramedics nationwide. Your department can take advantage of more than 150 full-length training courses and 225 hours of EMS continuing education in a robust learning management system. Training is accredited by the Commission on Accreditation of Pre-Hospital Continuing Education. Administrative features include group administration, credential management, custom course creation, assignments, offline training tracking, and more, all customized to meet the needs of the EMS training officers. To schedule a free demo, go to ems1academy.com. Another great edition of Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Savalera, and I'm going to say it. This is the Kelly and Chris Show, and here he is, Kelly Grayson. Are you are you being that solicitous of me just because we're dealing with, with the hurricane? We are. I mean, I don't know if you're going to be around. I don't know if you're going to be around very much longer, so I, I want to give you a gift. <laughs> I got you. Oh, man, what a, what a week this has been, you know. It's, it's heading our way again, so... We're yeah, about cool. to get a taste of what Houston has experienced, and uh, and uh, I'll be working in that in the next uh, next two to three days. But hopefully, it's not going to get anywhere near my house. So, well, we joke about it, but we want you to be safe, and we certainly pray for the people who are down there in Houston, and certainly all our peers who have uh, given their time to get down there and and uh, you know give their give their professionalism to help out the folks in Houston and in those areas that are affected, and you know. You, you you kind of think about the you know what what the world has become, and then yeah. you see you know these natural disasters happen and just the the heart of people and you know what they're giving and you know I, I saw a thing on social media yesterday where there was uh, uh, miles of folks that were coming down there with their boats and jet skis to help evacuate and you know the the, the old, Cajun Navy bed. Yeah, and all the organizations that are coming out to, you know, I got a thing from uh, Choice Hotels yesterday asking me to donate all my points so they can turn that into money and give it. And, you know, so when these things happen, regardless of political affiliations and religious beliefs, and this is where everybody comes together and truly, uh, I think, makes a difference. You know, and and our our national discourse has become so uh, hate filled. You know, and we're we're it seems like we're so divided and against each other, and focusing on our our differences as people rather than our commonalities. That that uh, it shouldn't take a hurricane and devastation to millions of people to to bring us together and remind us what is important. But it, it seems like that that is exactly what's happening. And um, as far as listening to the better angels of our nature, um, uh, I, I would like to make an announcement for Kilted to Kick Cancer. You know, as you know, September 1st kicks off uh, Kilted to Kick Cancer Fundraiser 2017. Uh, and since such uh, uh, hardship is, is being gone through uh, by the, the folks affected by Hurricane Harvey, uh, one of the things we're doing for Kilted to Kick Cancer this year is we just don't feel like just soliciting funds uh, for cancer research, even though that is our, our mission. So for this year only, we're going to uh, also accept donations 
uh, toward fundraising totals for our, our fundraising challenge toward that, that fundraising goal uh, to one of the following four charities. You can donate to the Houston Food Bank, Food Bank of Corpus Christi, uh, the Center for Disaster Philanthropy Hurricane Harvey Recovery Fund, and J.J. Watt's fundraiser for Hurricane Harvey Relief. Uh, and if you donate to, to one of those worthy flood charities, um, and forward your uh, your donation receipt to Kelly at KiltedToCancer.org uh, and tell us what fundraising team you would like it credited to. We will credit that to their fundraising totals. Uh, so you don't have to choose between helping the, the folks affected by Hurricane Harvey or, or donating to cancer research. Um, uh, we're all in this together, and we'd like to uh, uh, our donations to uh, to reflect that. Well, that's awesome, man. And, and look for my donation. I, I believe in the Kilted to Kick Cancer and also applaud you guys for making the decision to, uh, you know, help those folks down in uh, in Houston. And it just goes to the core of who you guys are as professionals, uh, the, the work that you do and the belief of humanity. And uh, I sit back and applaud the uh, efforts that you guys are doing. But, you know... We, we're getting a little somber, and and one of the things I would like to do. Yeah, is, we need a we need a lighter moment, man. We, we do. <laughs> so if anybody can give us a lighter moment, it's Kelly Grayson. You know, one of the things, Kelly, you and I have talked about, you know, on this show is that you know we we do this show with the intent of two guys sitting in a truck, and we're talking mm-hmm. about the things that everybody's talking about in our career field. And but one of the things you and I have never done is we've never talked about the funniest calls we've ever had, or we've never talked about oh, the calls man. that have made us. Uh, that have taught us the most or so i'd like to be able to are we take, are we going to play a game of can you top this i don't know if we're going to do that but you know Let's i certainly have a lot of shows but you know so maybe my first question to you is what's the funniest call you've ever run ah uh, funniest call I, you know when i ran it it was it was kind of uh macabre but but it, it wound up being funny and in only the way the uh, an EMS call and a tragedy can be funny. It, it's probably funny only to us uh, looking back on it. But that would have to be the the ostrich attack. Every every good EMS war story starts the same way, you know. So there I was, uh, and used usually someone saying, you know, there I was first into the uh, hemophiliac Jehovah's Witness bus crash into the glass factory, and I only had a tube of Neosporin and a half box of four by fours. <laughs> but in this case. I ran what is, uh, is, to my knowledge, is probably the only double fatality ostrich attack uh, that I've ever heard of. Uh, I was working as a, as a supervisor for uh, Darbone Ambulance, and um, one of our crews was called to uh, a little town in, in uh, North, uh, North Union Parish called Spearsville for unknown man down. Uh, <clears throat> and I sprint the call with them. And... Uh, when we arrive on scene, there is an elderly couple there, and, and uh, uh, the the elderly gentleman is dead, uh, and he looks like he has been subjected to a, a slasher. He's been an extra in a slasher flick, and uh, the woman is is dying uh, and doesn't know it yet. And <clears throat> while we're we're you know busy stabilizing this woman, I'm I'm trying to intubate her, and uh, she's decorticate posturing and got all sorts of of wounds. Um, and while I'm trying to control her airway and everything, I asked one of the, uh, sheriff's deputies on scene, I said, what in the heck happened to these people? 
And he clicks on his stream light and he points it out in the pasture and he, he says, that right there. And out there in the pasture is a about a 300-pound, seven-and-a-half, maybe eight-foot-tall, huge rooster ostrich. And he is bloody with gore from the knees down. And I'm just like, wow, an ostrich did these to these people. So I, I turned my attention from that. We're stabilizing the woman and getting her on a spine board. And, and all of a sudden, uh, I hear the, the ominous sound of six glocks being pulled from safari land to retention holsters all at once. And I look up, and all the deputies are drawn down on this, this ostrich, who is now about 10 feet away and doing his threat display, and he's, he's kind of fluffing his little stubby wings out and, and stomping his feet and, and looking very aggressive. And, and Chris, i got to tell you, man, I learned something important about myself that day. I learned that if you give me a charcoal briquette, I can give you back a diamond as long as you don't care uh, or ask where I've had it. <laughs> um, the pucker factor was pretty high, man. I thought... I said in, in a tone I thought was very calm and matter of fact, uh, would someone please shoot that damn bird? <laughs> <laughs> and the, the shift sergeant said, equally as calmly, we can't shoot him. He's not a threat. <laughs> I just look at him dumbfounded and look back at these two people. Uh, this ostrich is, is uh, um, uh, savage. And, and look back at him and was like, Dude, you, you're not serious, are you? He said, the bird is not an imminent threat. We cannot destroy this animal without authorization. I was like, dude, grip, sight picker, trigger squeeze, repeat as necessary, chop, chop. <laughs> and he says, uh, and, and the, the shift sergeant is about as country as his grits and collard greens. He says, if the bird charges, we'll take him down. Just ease her on out to the ambulance on that board, put her on your stretcher, Keep up. We'll stay between you and the bird, and if he charges, we'll take him out. That's hilarious. So we we did just that, and we hauled butt to South Arkansas Medical Center nail salon tire repair and crawfish shot, call in a trauma alert, and when we get there, I'm giving handoff report to the ER physician, and he's in there with a team of people. The room's crowded with all of us in there, and, and uh, I say, yeah, we've got a... Uh, uh, Oscars attack, one fatality on scene. This lady has an avulsed left breast and, and uh, multiple uh, uh, wounds, closed head injury, and she was a cortical posture on scene. And I dropped an ET, uh, 7.5 ET2, and it's 21 at the lips. And she was flash, uh, she's uh, no longer posturing now. She's flaccid and vitals are such and such and, and all this. And, and the whole time I'm giving this report, the guy's just kind of peering over his glasses at this woman's defensive wounds all over her arms and hands. And he says, ah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, something just doesn't seem right. And I paused and said, okay, doc, I'll bite. What doesn't seem right? And he says, well, no, no, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I'm listening to what you're saying, but it's just that this just doesn't look like any ostrich attack I've ever seen. Did you see see one before? That's exactly it. The entire ER just busted out laughing. The giggles turned into just almost rolling on the floor laughing. And and the the crazy part was the doc didn't realize what he'd said, you know. And and finally, my my partner, uh, who is is, uh, a quintessential country boy, said, Doc, 
just uh, don't take this the wrong way. I ain't trying to be disrespectful or anything, but how many ostrich attacks have you seen? <laughs> and the doctor realized what he what he said. He said, "Well, I, this would be my first, but I uh, I uh, I meant this didn't look like an animal attack." So. He kicked us out of his ER and told us never to come back, and uh, we left. We, we go back to the sea, and the ostrich is now dead. We arrive on the scene. The ostrich is piled up about 10 feet from the, the ship sergeant's patrol cruiser. He's sitting on the tailgate of his SUV, and there's a little fork with this shell-shocked look on his face. And uh, there's this reserve deputy uh, standing next to him holding the, the 870 riot gun. He's shaking so hard the slide eyes rattling on this 870. He looks like he's about 14 years old and his mom doesn't know he's playing cop. Uh, so I asked the, the patrol sergeant, I said, Steve, what happened? He said, we got authorization to destroy the animal. And I, I, I walked out there and I double tapped him with 40 caliber hollow points and it, it just pissed him off. <laughs> so the bird charged him. And the, the little reserve deputy had to take it down with two shots of uh, three-inch magnum double-off buck from this riot gun. And one pellet hit the bird in the brain, and it literally skidded to a stop at their feet. <laughs> you oh, know? And I could just see Steve walking all cocky out there, drawing his, his service weapon, and just pow, double-tapping this bird. And the ostrich looking at it like, sucker! <laughs> oh, no, you didn't. And, uh, I just walked over there and prodded the bird with my toe and said, well, I got dibs on the drumsticks. Um, but the, the, what, what makes the story more unusual is I told this at a, I tell this at, at conferences sometimes I told this in a presentation at a conference in, uh, Alabama and the physio control rep came up to me in the exhibit hall later and he says, Oh yeah, that call, I, that's, that's, uh, um, so-and-so family. So I, you know them? He said, yeah, yeah, I, I remember all about that. They were they were good friends with my parents. I'm from that that neck of the woods. I said, and this happened in Birmingham, Alabama, 20 years after the fact. So uh, you never can say that um, uh, a call is too obscure that someone else won't, won't recognize it. That's but funny. Man. That's mine, man. Tell me, tell me yours. You know, so there I was. Yeah, so there I was. You know, certainly I can't <laughs> tell a funny story like you do. I mean, you did the voices and everything, but... So, you know, I picked up this patient one time, and it was a, a, a middle-aged gentleman who was having some, had an infection in his uh, abdomen secondary to uh, abdominal surgery, whether it was, I don't remember if it was gallbladder or something like that. And, you know, from the very beginning that I walk into the house, you know, I, I do the whole thing. My name is Chris. I'm a paramedic. This is so-and-so. He's my partner. We're here to take care of you. And everything that I do... I start mm -hmm. to hear, I just start to hear things. So as I walk to get my bag, I hear my shoes are now starting to squeak. And, you know, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit OCD. I'm a little bit type A. And I'm thinking, well, why the hell am <laughs> no. I, why are my boots squeaking? And then it was just, you know, I'm kind of tapping it on the floor. And it was just that one boot. And then as I walk back, now all of a sudden both boots are squeaking. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? So... You know, I'm interacting with this guy, and I'm talking to him, and I take his blood pressure. All of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm feeling his pulse, and I start to hear, like, uh, um, my fingers on his skin are scraping. And I'm like, what the heck is going on, you know? And we put him on the stretcher, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, we hear the stretcher creak. 
And I'm like, man, is this thing going to... And I was like, wait a minute, let's go ahead and make sure we're locked, you know? So we put the stretcher down. This is back in the day where we had to put the stretcher down and lift the stretcher up. Oh, yeah. Old Inferno like, Model 26. I don't want this thing to break. <laughs> so then we get this guy into the ambulance, and I, I'm looking at his wound, and I'm going to replace his bandage, and I'm going to irrigate it. So as I open the cabinets, the cabinets are now making squeaky noises. So... Basically, a long story short, come to find out, this guy is like Michael Winslow, and he's the one who's making the noises. <laughs> he's the one who's making the noises every time I do something. And I didn't really catch it until one point. I was like, what the heck is going on? And then I look at this guy, and he's got tears that are just rolling down his face. And he was messing with me for a good 15 minutes of making these noises as I was doing everything, as I touched his skin, as I put the stethoscope on, as I took the stethoscope out of my ears. And he did it with just a straight face and drove me crazy for like, uh, whatever it was, 20 minutes or so. But when I think about it, and he was great. I mean, because it really sounded like my shoes were squeaking. It really sounded like there was creaks in the stretcher that it was, you know, uh, like a hinge uh, 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 you know, when you open a door and it makes that creak, mm-hmm. and I'm like, what the heck is that? Things that you shouldn't be hearing. And uh, now it didn't help that it was also two in the morning. It didn't yeah. help that, you know, you're waking up, you're woken up out of a sleep. Um, but that's kind of one of the funniest things that I did. But Well, well, on that same note, uh, on, cool, on, on fun gags to play on people, um, the little small mom and pop ambulance service I started out at, like a lot of rural ambulance services back in the day, uh, would would take funeral home runs after our funeral home calls to, to make ends meet. You know, it's easy money. Uh, funeral home was closed, and you had, they had a body they need to to retrieve uh, after hours. Rather than call somebody in, they just send an ambulance out there and pay us a hundred bucks straight uh, straight cash, and and we go drop the the. Uh, the uh, body off of the funeral home. Leave a little index card with all those demographics scrawled on it uh, on top of the body, put it on the embalming table, and we're, we're done. So we had one of those calls one night, and the, the uh, crew assigned to run the call was uh, Ricky and Cindy Butts. Um, they were a husband and wife, and uh, Ricky and Cindy both had this quirk where they don't do dead bodies. No way, no how. Work a code all the live long day, but as soon as someone says stop or this is not someone we're resuscitating anymore, they could not be in the same room with them. Uh, and they get a funeral home call. So it's in the south end of the parish. It's going to take them an hour to get down there, pick up the, the, the uh, deceased, and bring them back to the funeral home. So I run over to the boss's house and said, look, I, I need um, my moulage kit. She had borrowed it. I said, I need my moulage kit right away. She said, it's 10 o'clock at night. What do you need a moulage kit for? And I said, well, Ricky and Cindy are going on this body call, and I'm going to go to Forest Funeral Home, and I'm going to lay on the embalming table and pretend to be a corpse and scare the mess out of them. (laughs) My boss said, that is sophomore and juvenile and a perfect example of inappropriate horseplay in the workplace. So here, take my video camera. (laughs) So... We go, we go to the uh, to the funeral home, and, and I got the hide key out of the air uh, air conditioning cabinet, and uh, let myself into the embalming room, and stripped down to my shorts. We bleached the table real quick, and because uh, I, I we knew what we remembered 
things that we've put on that table previously. So made sure it was super clean. I stripped down in my underwear, uh, made up my toes with some death powder and some purple and, and uh, put a sheet over myself. And, and my partner went to hide the truck. And I just waited for Ricky and them. So presently, we hear a, uh, a car, a ambulance pull up outside. And you hear the doors open and shut. And there's this shaft of light on my face as they open the door. And you hear Ricky say, oh, crap, they already got one on the table. And you hear Cindy say, oh, I ain't going in there. And Ricky just sighs this put upon sign. He said, oh, my God. Well, oh, man, he's a big one, too. He's going to be heavy. Let me go see if I can find another scratcher. So Cindy waits outside while Ricky goes wandering through this dark funeral home at night through the casket showroom. <laughs> and you can hear him reciting the Lord's Prayer as he walks through this, through this funeral home. <laughs> he's scared to death. And he finally gets back with their body stretcher, and he's going to just put their body on it uh, uh, and, and park it next to the embalming table next to me. Well, I can't quite tell where he's at, um, but I know he's, he's close by. I've got my eyes closed. I'm afraid he's going to be able to see me breathing any second now. And he's moving linen cans and biohazard cans out of the way. And I know he's just somewhere off to my right. When I couldn't hold my breath anymore, I just sat bolt upright and reached out and grabbed him by the arm and said, what are you doing? <laughs> and Chris, have you ever seen like in the cartoons where you frighten one of the cartoon characters and the body just kind of runs away and then the head catches up to it like it's on a rubber band? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what happened to Ricky Butts. He left that embalming room and hit the parking lot uh, three feet in the air and gained an altitude and his head caught up with him like it was on a rubber band. Uh, Cindy let out a blood curdling scream and, and wet her pants and Ricky stopped about 30 yards into the back lot of this, this funeral home rolling in the grass going oh you bastard you got me I can't believe you got me that good and he's, he's alternating between crying and, and laughing and uh, uh, <laughs> we say today you know so death powder makeup $15 linens $2 making Cindy butts wet her pants priceless that's crazy, man. <laughs> that's some of the kind of crap we used to pull back in the day when we didn't have enough runs to, to make ends meet. We weren't so busy that we had to that we were we're killing ourselves. Yeah, one of the things that we got to do is we got to maybe talk about one day all the practical jokes that we've done on people in our career. Oh yeah, I mean I so, can't count the number of new medics that I would or new EMTs that I talked into nasally trumpeting themselves or. The ones that we duct taped and hung. Remember back in the old days where you can hang the backboards in the ambulance. But oh yeah, know, one of the ones I want to share with you too, and and I'll I'll give you one, and then you give me one. Is the call that right. gave you that taught you the biggest lesson? And you know this one that I talk about all the time. And I got to tell you, at this point in my time, I'm a paramedic maybe about 15 years, mm -hmm. and uh, I go to a rehab hospital for a stroke. And yeah. when I get there, the doctor's at the table, uh, the doctor's at the bedside, and the woman has some drooping in her face, and uh, he says, you know, this woman came in for a knee, sir, a knee rehab, um, we came in this morning, she uh, is exhibiting uh, stroke-like symptoms, we want you to go ahead and take her to the uh, hospital, which was just, you know, it was on the same property, we're talking about less than a mile away. She had an IV in place. She had an EKG on. So they gave me her vital signs. And um, so I transferred, took the patient, looked in her. Uh, I 
um, changed the IV a little bit, uh, made sure she was stable, and took her to the hospital, called in a report. And when I got there, uh, you know, I passed off, and I came back a few hours later. I wasn't one of those paramedics who really check on people. You know, once I'm done, yeah. I feel that my job is over, and, you know, because I, I would get very uh, upset if, you know, I, I worked hard to save a patient to find out they died later. So I just stopped doing that. I, once my I get to the ER, my job is done. Mm-hmm. And so I went back later, uh, a couple of hours, and I asked the nurse, I said, how is the woman, the stroke woman doing? And he said, well, go back there and check on her. So I went back there, and the woman is eating lunch, watching The Price is Right. <laughs> Come on down! That's right. And I said, well, what happened to her? She had a blood sugar of 17. Oh, man. And I never, I mean, and and you know, and you know better that when you have that, you should be checking a blood glucose. That's the biggest mimic of a stroke right there. Now, what happened, Kelly, was that the nurse came in and gave that woman, by mistake, the insulin that was due to give her woman in the other other bed. And Uh. it... It bottomed their blood. It bottomed their blood sugar out, and uh, but that was a big lesson for me. And I felt embarrassed. I felt uh, idiotic. You know, I mean, of course, your ego at the time. You're like, I can't believe mm-hmm. that I did this. But uh, I remember wanting to hide this fact that I I screwed the pooch on this call, and but then I just started to talk about it and. What was funny is that maybe a week later, I ran a similar call of a potential stroke, only to find out she had a blood sugar of like 37. So uh-huh. at least I had learned from the episode and said that I was never going to do that again. But that has stuck with me for, I don't know, man, you know, 15 oh. years, because that to me was the biggest um, episode of tunnel vision that a paramedic could ever have. Yeah. Well... The, the call that changed me as a, as a medic, uh, and if I'm honest with myself, it, it changed me as a man, too, um, was uh, a young man who had uh, been shot in a drive-by shooting. Um, you know, when you, Greg, I, I believe that when, when you graduate from paramedic school, uh, two types come out of paramedic school. You get the, the new graduates who are awed by the responsibility now in their hands and they take it very seriously and they're they're kind of uh intimidated uh by their responsibility so they're they're still carrying their textbooks with them and and still questioning every everything they do do they do it right and and tortured by angst uh, until they get their feet under them and then there's a second type that is uh thinks they're god's gift to paramedicine and they're cocky as heck and and uh uh, they're ready to go save some lives and staff out disease. Uh, if only someone would just have the dang common courtesy to die, uh, when they're on duty. Um, and I was that second type. <laughs> so, uh, I was a new paramedic with, with barely a, a year's experience under my belt. And I was stuck in a rural station where I didn't feel, feel like I belonged. Uh, and, uh, the medic running calls, uh, in the, the, from the station I, I should have been assigned to. Uh, had a call, uh, picked up this kid, 25-year-old, uh, shot in the belly in the drive-by shooting. And instead of bringing him to the trauma center, um, brought him to the, the local hospital. So, uh, as was usual, um, I got called at 3 o'clock in the morning to go take out the transfer that never should have been brought there in the first place, in my opinion. 
so I get there, and this kid's um, got a, a bandage on his belly, and he's kind of semi-conscious, and, and I'm tired, pissed off, and not paying attention. And the nurse is giving me a handoff report, and all that's going through my mind is blah, 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 blah. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Let's just get him out of this freaking Band-Aid station before y'all kill him. Uh, so I get him in the back of the truck, and about 15 minutes into the transport, he moans, Oh, I'm going to puke. So before I could get the, uh, the uh, emesis basin, um, he pukes, and it's, it's bright red blood. Uh, and I mean torrents of it. Um, we're talking bleeding esophageal varices straight out of the exorcist kind of torrents of blood. Um, and I go to turn him and I can't get him turned. He's on a spine board and he's too heavy for me to turn and, and manage his airway at the same time. So I try to suction him and, and the suction's not working as well as it should. And, and I fill the suction canister up in just a matter of minutes. Uh, and then, you know, he's aspirating blood uh, while I'm fumbling trying to get the, the uh, suction canister put back together. And I, uh, I tried to uh, open up the lines, only to discover that there were 60-drop sets. Uh, so while I'm cursing the nurse that, that put micro-drip infusion sets on a trauma patient and, and ran them through 22-gauge catheters, uh, I'm trying to manage his airway and uh, get two large bore resuscitation lines in place. So I managed to do that. I get a couple of 16s in him and 10 drop sets and start bolusing fluid and he pukes again and I can't get it controlled. And uh, I make the decision uh, that I'm going to try to intubate him by myself, no one else to help, um, with a compromised airway and, and poor, poor uh, visualization. Uh, and by this time, he's losing consciousness. His blood pressure is like 60 over nothing. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm desperate and I'm trying, I'm yelling at him by this point. You can hear the fear in my voice. I could hear it. I was ashamed of it, but I'm, I'm like, you know, uh, Frankie, you don't, don't die on me. You don't die on me. You son of a, you know what? No one dies in the back of my ambulance. You got to keep your eyes open. You got to keep fighting. Don't die on me. And I'm shouting this at this kid as I'm working and his aunt is sitting in the front seat of the ambulance in the passenger seat listening to me have my little unprepared freak out trying to save her nephew and uh i go to drop the tube in him and my rationale was okay if i get the tube i've secured his airway and at least he won't aspirate anymore and i can ventilate him if i don't get the tube and i tube the esophagus i can still inflate the cuff and what he vomits out will go out the tube and onto the floor, and that will at least allow me to, to catch up with the suction and maybe visualize his vocal cords on the next attempt. So that's what I do. I blindly drop the tube, get it in. Sure enough, it's in his belly. And before I can try a second attempt, I hear the backup alarm goes, going off. We're at the trauma center. And we unload him, go through the, the front doors of the trauma center, and the... Uh, the uh, ER physician met me at the door, stuck his stethoscope in his ears, hooked up the ambu bag one time, and bagged one time, listened to his belly, and he said, this dude's in the stomach, and just unceremoniously pulled it out. And uh, Chris, you, you got to picture me. You know, I've got blood in my hair. I've got blood up to my elbows. I've got blood on my face. Uh, 
I look like I've slaughtered a cow. I'm upset. And I just flipped out on the doctor. I'm flipped out, uh, screaming, spit flying, bug eyed. I'm going to assault you physically rant, you know, and, and ran the guy off and he hustles out of the room with my stretcher while uh, a nurse and my partner pulled me away from him. So I go to the nursing, uh, lounge and sit down and try to compose myself. Nurse comes in a few minutes later and, uh, hands me up some paper scrubs and I'd gotten the blood cleaned off myself and she handed me a coat and she said, uh, figured you might want these scrubs. I said, okay, thanks. She said, well, we, we called the code about five minutes ago. So if it makes you feel any better, the, the doctor wasn't able to get an airway either. And I said, well, no, it, it doesn't make me feel better, but, but thanks for telling me. So I, uh, drop off my copy of the run report and I walk outside, uh, to go in the ambulance and, uh, kid's aunt is sitting, is standing out there in the ambulance bay smoking a cigarette and I'm thinking what am I going to say to this woman <laughs> I just killed her nephew um, and I tried to sneak around her and I didn't make it and she grabbed me by the arm as I uh, as I walked past and I just froze and she just rather than cuss me out or blame me or or say anything accusatory she just gently turned me around, pulled my head down to her shoulder, and whispered in my ear. She said, it's okay, baby. I know you did everything that you could. And, man, it struck me then, and it burns me now. I said, shame will never burn you so hot as when a relative thanks you for killing their loved one. And uh, I made up my mind that day. I went back to the station, and I crawled in the shower, and I turned the hot water on. And uh, I cried myself to sleep in the shower. And I woke up the next day wondering if I could be a paramedic. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I, calls like that, uh, you can do one of two things. You can you know, let them run you out of, uh, out of EMS and convince, convince you that you're not meant to, uh, to be in this profession. Or you can learn the lesson from it and, uh, and strive to be a better man, a better medic as, because of it. And, uh, and, man, that haunted me for years. I had nightmares about that call and that kid. And, and I guess, you know, looking back on it now, PTSD from it. But uh, eventually writing about it and talking about it at, at conferences and stuff in, in my presentations um, kind of made friends with the ghost, you know. I, I don't have nightmares about Frankie anymore. But uh, that one call shaped who I would become as a paramedic after that. I was like, okay, you best do something to get let your knowledge and skills catch up with your ego because they do not match right now. And uh, you better get to work on being the paramedic you think you were. Um, and so that was the one that, that, that did it for me. I try not to, uh, I try not to be that complacent or that jaded uh, ever since. And, um, you know, that's, that's shaped me into the paramedic I am now. So just that one call more than anything else. Yeah, that's a crazy story, man. But that'll do. Oh it. man, it was it was rough, but man, that's uh that's that's our war stories. I, I think we uh we need some of our listeners to to share some of their war stories, some of their memorable calls with us, the things that that grossed you out or made you laugh, or the things that shaped you or and affected you profoundly. We'd like to hear about them. 
So y'all email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Don't forget to donate to the Hurricane Harvey Relief Funds uh, for Kilted to Kick Cancer Charities or donate directly to Kilted to Kick Cancer. And for myself and co-host Chris Sevalero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.